I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. My next interview is with Dr. Anthony Lang. He's the director of the Edmund J. Saffer Program in Parkinson's Disease at the University Health Network. He's the U of T's director of the Movement Disorder Clinic or Center. He's been called by uh, some as a, quote, master of movement disorders. He has many, many years of experience uh, working with patients, uh, theoretically, practically, and so on, and so very rooted in this world. We talk about movement disorders. We talk about neurodegenerative disease and, and, and progressive decline. We talk about how lifestyle may or may not have an impact on that. We talk about some really exciting research that's going on in the field about biomarkers and blood tests and, and even vaccines. Can you believe that? Vaccines for potentially for, for um, some of these uh, disorders, some of these diseases. And of course, uh, we get into uh, a lot of the, hmm, the nuance and the subtlety around this uh, very difficult and complex field. I think you're going to enjoy this uh, interview a great deal. Uh, lots, of, lots of interesting things going on here. Dr. Anthony Lang, um, davidpecklive.com for more information about my speaking, about... Uh, my interviews and uh, about my writing. Also, rabble.ca uh, for further information about a whole host of uh, podcasts, including my own there at the Face to Face on the Rabble Network. Dr. Anthony Lang coming right up. Well, welcome to Face to Face. We're joined by a very special guest today, and I have particular interest in this interview, and I think you're going to find out why as we move uh, forward uh, and along into this. But uh, we're with the uh, professor at the University of Toronto Department of Medicine, uh, Dr. Anthony Lang. He's here live with us today. Thank you for joining us. Glad, glad to be here. He's also the director of the Morton and Gloria Shulman Movement Disorder Center at Toronto Western Hospital. He's the director of the Division of Neurology at U of T. He holds the Jack Clark, Clark Chair for Parkinson's Disease Research at U of T. And he holds, uh, he's with the Edmund J. Saffer Program in Parkinson's Disease and Research. Did I get all of that right? I think you got it all. <laughs> pretty, pretty close. So, so what do you do in your spare time, I think, is the first question I need to ask. Not a lot of that, but... Uh, We've now got five grandchildren, and I enjoy wow. spending time with them. 
Uh, so you clearly uh, hold uh, a lot of positions. I was looking a little bit at your your research. You've been you've been writing for years. You've been uh, working obviously with with real patients on the ground. This is not just theoretical. What what do you know today that um, makes you um, allows you to get out of bed in the morning? How's that? What is it today that's driving you that that maybe you didn't have access to ten or fifteen years ago with advancements in in research and science? Well, I do a field of neurology called movement disorders, and Parkinson's disease is the commonest of those. Um, many of the disorders that we deal with are what are called neurodegenerations. They're diseases that are associated with loss of brain cells and a progressive decline in neurological function over many years, uh, sometimes over quite a long time, and in other cases a relatively short period of mm. time. So some of them are very aggressive and others are more indolent. Um, we have learned a great deal about these neurodegenerations in the last many years. We now recognize that they relate to the deposition of certain proteins in the brain, mm. and each neurodegeneration is associated with selective uh, proteins. So, for example, Alzheimer's disease, the commonest neurodegeneration, is associated with uh, certain proteins called uh, beta amyloid and tau. They have actually two different proteins, and their relationship is uh, somewhat uh, challenging and, um, and confusing, but I think we're learning a great deal more about that. In Parkinson's disease, for example, the um, protein is called alpha-synuclein. These are normal proteins. They exist in the brain normally, but for reasons that are not clear but becoming increasingly understood, these proteins accumulate or aggregate in nerve cells and in related uh, cells in the brain. And somehow the accumulation and aggregation of these proteins cause dysfunction of the nerve cells and eventually their demise. They kill the nerve cells in various ways. So the recognition of that has really changed the, the landscape and the approach. Um, until recently, all of the treatment that we've had for Parkinson's disease, for example, has been largely what we call symptomatic. Mm -hmm. The treatment mm -hmm. is designed to improve the symptoms, and the symptoms of Parkinson's are especially recognized as what we call motor symptoms. That's why the general category of diseases I deal with are called movement disorders. The movement of the body is dysfunctional. We're now recognizing that most of these disorders are far more than movement abnormalities. They often have what are, what are called non-motor changes as well. Hmm. But the best treatment we have for Parkinson's disease has its major effect on the movements, um, especially those experienced early in the disease. So the things that people have seen on the street or they've seen in their relatives with these diseases, the slowness, the tremor, the shakiness, the stiffness, the difficulties walking. And uh, for many years, the uh, treatment that we have, the symptomatic treatment, the treatment designed to improve symptoms, can control these symptoms quite effectively. The treatment in Parkinson's is designed to replace the neurotransmitter or chemical in the brain called dopamine. And we know that dopamine is very much uh, involved in motor control. The problem with uh, that is that as time goes on, increasingly non-motor features become disabling. 
behavioral problems, cognitive difficulties, mood problems, troubles with control of bowel, bladder, blood pressure, so-called autonomic nervous system. So the non-motor features become increasingly problematic. And then there are increasing motor features that become resistant to dopamine replacement. And um, these include speech difficulties and swallowing problems, uh, and particularly gait and walking difficulties with so falling ba balance, balance and falling exactly, and, yeah. and, and something called freezing where the patient gets glued and can't, can't proceed and can't walk. So um, the analogy I always use when I introduce the diagnosis and how to treat when I speak to patients and families is the analogy is a strep throat. Strep throat is a bacterial streptococcal infection of the throat. The symptom is a sore throat, pain in the throat. And we don't have penicillin for Parkinson's disease. So we don't have the cure the way you would treat a strep throat. We have a cure for strep throat. But just imagine if we didn't have the cure or didn't have a treatment that was directed at the infection, the streptococcal infection, but we had an incredibly effective lozenge. And if you had a very good lozenge that re relieved the symptoms of the sore throat, you could continue to have a strep throat and not even know you've got it. Mm, right. So in the early years, we have great lozenges for Parkinson's. Right. We treat the symptoms very effectively, but the underlying disease remains and progresses and, and gets worse. At what point do you say that, I mean, obviously, to say that the neurological diseases are complicated is, is maybe <laughs> an understatement. a bit, bit of an understatement. Yeah. Uh, how do, you, how do you stay hopeful, in a sense, when, when there are so many treatments, there are so many cures for things like strep throat? There are uh, more than lozenges. You know, lozenges seem to me, again, you know, that you're treating, you're treating the symptoms, you're not treating the disease, and so on. I have psoriatic arthritis, and I know a little bit about that as well. You know, I was on a naproxen for years where it was eating away my stomach, but it was yep. attending to the swelling, and then I got onto a biologic drug, it's actually attending to the disease itself. So I, I do get that to some degree. But, I mean, it's got to be pretty incredibly frustrating on some level to say, okay, you can treat so many. Um, are we ever going to get there with a disease as complex as well, if, if we're if we're practical and honest, um, that one of the criticisms of neurology has always been in the long distant past the fact that we don't have good treatments. And so the old joke about neurology was diagnose and adios. You made a diagnosis wow. and then you said goodbye because wow. you had nothing Getting to goosebumps. offer the patients. That's long since gone. In fact, we have tons of therapies for neurological diseases now and that old mm. thinking is just totally outmoded and incorrect. And by therapy, you don't mean just obviously medications, there are other... Yeah, there's know, surgery, there's physiotherapy, there are many, many different treatments that we apply to neurological diseases. But if we're very honest and practical, Many diseases in medicine don't have cures. So lots of heart treatments, congestive heart failure, lots of renal uh, treatments, uh, liver treatments, arthritic treatments. There, there are many, many diseases that we manage, sometimes better than others, but we manage and people function reasonably well and sometimes with limitation or disability, but they still manage despite the fact that we don't have a cure. So we've been doing pretty well despite the lack of a cure in Parkinson's. Now, unfortunately, many of the other neurodegenerative diseases we don't do well at all in. Right. And these people, if they present 
in a fashion that mimics Parkinson's disease, as many right. of the diseases that I also deal with uh, do, we uh, have patients present with a form of Parkinson's that doesn't respond so well to the treatment. And that's often one of the first clues that you're dealing with one of these other diseases. And, and because they fail to respond very well, that creates considerable disability and, and really are prevents us from managing those very well at all. Are, th are there any other um, common links to these diseases other than the brain? So a best example is the proteins that I was mentioning and uh, one of the commonest mimickers of Parkinson's is a disease called multiple system atrophy. Hmm. It's actually the disease that Johnny Cash died of. Hmm. And uh, so these are not uncommon disorders and we can always find patient people that are well known in, in history that have had one or other of these diseases but multiple system atrophy can present in a fashion that mimics Parkinson's to a T and then with time it's clear that it's not Parkinson's disease. Interestingly the protein that deposits in the brain and is abnormal in multiple system atrophy is the identical protein that's involved in Parkinson's disease, this alpha-synuclein that I mentioned very briefly earlier. And so there is more than just the fact that it affects the brain, there can be overlap in the abnormal proteins. Now in multiple system atrophy that protein deposits in different ways. It deposits in different types of cells, but it turns out that the clinical features that we see on the examination of the patient can be very, very similar. So we've got good symptomatic treatment in some areas, but not so good in others. But it's this expanding understanding of the origins of the disease that get me up in the morning. It's the fact that we're understanding a great deal more about how the disease begins. Mm. Often we think in Parkinson's, for example, the disease doesn't start in the brain at all. It starts mm. outside the brain, possibly in an area of the body called the autonomic nervous system. So we may be able to demonstrate the presence of this protein in skin biopsies or bowel biopsies or some other uh, part of the body long before the patient presents with a movement problem. And that's one of the things that gets very exciting because eventually we believe we may have methods of di diagnosing the disease before the patient ever presents with a tremor and slowness. Mm. That def dopamine deficiency that accounts for the slowness and the tremor, etc., patients typically have to have a good 60% of dopamine deficiency before they present with any symptoms. So there are redundancies in the brain or there are um, mechanisms whereby the brain can compensate for the develop for the severity of dopamine deficiency so you have this degenerative process you're gradually losing your dopamine but you're showing no signs until you hit, hit that threshold so our hope is that eventually we'll be able to make a diagnosis before people hit the threshold and then initiate therapy that's designed not just as a lozenge, right. because you don't need the lozenge at that point, yep. you need something that actually gets at the primary pathogenesis or the primary process. And the primary process may be trying to eliminate the abnormal protein, trying to prevent it from aggregating and glopping up the cells and preventing them from functioning normally. It may be dealing with 
things like calcium metabolism, mm -hmm. like free radicals and oxidative stress in the brain. It may be related to dealing with what we call the mitochondria, the little energy producing parts of the cells and bolster their function. So we understand that there's probably a cascade of events in the brain cells that eventually result in the demise somehow triggered or precipitated by the abnormal protein, but we may have the ability to step in at multiple different so it's phases. As if, it's as if there's a catalyst somewhere along yeah. the way that, that, that fires up this progressive degeneration, which is a lovely paradox, by the way, progressive degeneration. Yep. Um, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, so, it, so, so is that where the research is kind of leaning right now is this early onset sort of diagnosis? Yes, so there's a lot of research going on in number one trying to define the cause. Mm. Why does this happen? Um, trying to define markers, biomarkers whereby we can make a more accurate diagnosis and define the presence of the pathology, define the presence of the abnormal disturbance in the brain and outside the brain long before patients present with symptoms. Then there's a great deal of interest in trying to figure out how does the disease spread throughout the brain. If it starts outside the brain, how does it get into the brain and then how does it spread from the initial places that it gets into the brain. It may be that there are many different mechanisms and there may be many different pathways. So some people will present with early cognitive difficulties without Right. evidence of Parkinsonism. Right. Other people may present with a pure failure of the autonomic nervous system with profound drops in their blood pressure when they stand up. Other people may present with mood changes or sleep abnormalities. There's one disturbance that we now recognize is very predictive of the subsequent development of neurodegeneration and that's a condition called rapid eye movement sleep disorder or hmm. REM behavior disorder. And in this situation patients will present with what we call dream enactment. The mechanisms in the brain that normally shut off your brain connection to your muscles during sleep and during dreaming, so when you dream, the brain has a mechanism in the brainstem to shut off your connection between your brain and your muscles. And the reason for that is it protects you. If you had the ability to act out your dreams, you punch and kick and fall out of bed and injure your bed partner and all the rest. And so when you dream, you actually have what's called atonia. You hmm. don't have muscle tone. Hmm. And so in REM behavior disorder, you lack that atonia, that normal atonia. And now you're talking to your muscles and you enact your dreams. You punch, kick, so it's like you're never fall rest, out of bed. You're never actually resting in no, a sense. No, during, during your dreams, you're very active. And this can, this can develop 10, 20, 30 years before the subsequent development of Parkinsonism. Hmm. So knowing that, there's a great deal of interest in using that as an example of the precedent to subsequent development of neurodegeneration. And if we know that people with that have a high likelihood of eventually evolving into a neurodegenerative process, often with alpha-synuclein, then taking those individuals and using them to try to define what biomarkers would predict who's going to develop the problem. What biomarkers will predict how quickly that problem will originate. How, how soon is it going to happen? Is it going to happen in five years? Is it going to happen in 15 years? And so we really believe that there are going to be markers that allow us to understand this disease process and then once we have the holy grail, the treatment that will stop the disease from progressing, maybe even reverse it, 
the neuroprotection or disease-modifying therapy. Once we have effective disease-modifying therapies, then you would initiate those in advance of the development of the clinical features of Parkinson's. When you started as a scientist, as a doctor, you know, evidence-based medicine, um, did you used to speak with more degree of certainty than you do today, would you say, or less? Uh, or is it a different kind? <laughs> does, it, does it always come with footnotes for you, Dr. Uh, lots Hoping? of footnotes, <laughs> lots of footnotes. I'm, I'm not sure I'm more certain. I think uh, at least we believe we understand the processes mm. better. Mm. Um, we know a great deal more about the underlying process in the brain and therefore the approaches to treatment I think are, are changing and the interest in, change in approaches is changing considerably. So f probably the best example of the anti-protein therapies that are coming along are vaccines. Hmm. And I, I think when I started and not that long ago, mm -hmm. probably five years, maybe a bit longer ago, we never would have dreamed that we were going to be using vaccines against selected proteins in these neurodegenerative diseases. And now there are anti-alpha-synuclein vaccines that are being tested in human wow. patients. Wow. For neurological so, disorders. For Parkinson's disease. Wow. For yeah. Parkinson's disease. Incredible. So, and Alzheimer's preceded Parkinson's right. using vaccines against uh, beta amyloid. Uh, there are vaccines developed against that other protein, tau, both to be considered in Alzheimer's disease, but other neurodegenerations called tauopathies. Most of these degenerations now have an opathy with the mm. protein named preceding it. So, okay. synucleinopathy, tauopathy. Okay. And so, uh, with that, we're seeing the development of uh, vaccines directed at the particular antibodies. There are also treatments that are designed to um, stabilize the proteins or allow the proteins to be eliminated better or dissolve better. So there are a number of different approaches that we, not, we wouldn't have conceived of uh, in, in not that long ago. Are you, do you, do, are you seeing more neurological disorders? I mean, you, in your I mean in your practice I suppose but I guess maybe the question is more sort of globally I think the World Health Organization says about a billion of people worldwide globally are affected by some kind of movement movement disorder movement disorder would you say yeah. or, or neurological well, I think disorder I guess if we if we limit the uh, the statement to neurodegenerative diseases most but not all of the neurodegenerative diseases um, one of the most important uh, risk factor is age so Parkinson's disease, most important, commonest risk factor. Alzheimer's disease, commonest risk factor is age. So as the general population mm -hmm. ages, and as we keep people alive and functioning from other things, we're treating their cancers more effectively, we're keeping their heart functioning longer, um, then they are more likely to live long enough to develop these uh, neurodegenerative diseases. Now, we also see young onset forms of each of these neurodegenerative diseases too, so it's not exclusive to the aged population, but uh, you know, when, I, when I was diagnosed, I think I was about 27 when I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis. Mm -hmm. First of all, I'd never heard of it before, then found out quickly how many different kinds there were and how young you could be, and you know, yeah. you know, oh, well, isn't that an old person's disease? You know, and typically with movement disorders, it seems to me, that's kind of... Well, one of, the, one of the other things that has changed a great deal in the last many years is the recognition of um, 
contribution of genetics mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. neurodegenerative diseases. And where genetics plays a very, very strong role, it's more likely that the age of onset is going to be younger. Hmm. So if you have a very strong genetic uh, predisposition, if we, we uh, see patients who are classified as Parkinson's disease, um, there's a lot of discussion as to whether they are formally the same as the synucleinopathy that we see in the aged patients. But there are younger patients where we see autosomal recessive genes, meaning you need an abnormal gene both from your father and from mm. your mother. Mm. Um, and they may develop Parkinsonism in their teens or 20s. Wow. Uh, certainly if we see Parkinson's below the age of 30 or 40, you have a reasonable chance of having one of these uh, autosomal recessive forms of Parkinsonism. There are also dominant forms of Parkinson's and they may be young or older in their onset. And then there are certain risk factors that we're now, genetic risk factors that we're now recognizing. So for example, no one would have expected this until some very good obser observations on the part of uh, physicians caring for patients with Gaucher's disease. I don't know whether you've heard of I Gaucher's. Don't know, I have not. Gaucher's is a, um, a metabolic disorder that is usually seen in children. Um, more common in Ashkenazi Jewish individuals, mm -hmm. and it's a sto what's called a storage disease. They accumulate in the brain and outside the brain certain uh, types of uh, sugars, mm -hmm. and uh, the um, gene is called glucocerebrosidase, or GBA. And some really uh, important observations saw more Parkinson's disease in family members of people with Gaucher's disease. And these were people who were the parents of a child of Gaucher's. And Gaucher's is generally an, another recessive disorder, as I described before. So a parent of someone with a recessive disorder often doesn't have symptoms because they only have one abnormal gene. And you need the two abnormal genes, one from the father, one from the mother. So it was recognized that parents and other members of the families that had what, what's called a heterozygote state, they only had one mutation, were now showing more frequent Parkinson's disease than was expected in the general population. And we now recognize that having a GBA mutation is a strong risk of subsequent development of Parkinson's disease. And that's blown it all completely wide open because the, the storage of this sugar in the brain and outside the brain in patients with Gaucher's disease is it, you, you store more of these because you're not breaking it down in these little things in the cells called lysosomes. Lysosomes pack all sorts of enzymes that chew things up that you don't want in your cell. And so if you don't have normal functioning lysosomes, you get things that are stored in the cell that shouldn't be there, and they fill the cell up and damage the cell. So a lysosomal storage disease suddenly is associated with Parkinson's. No one would have imagined mm. this. Mm. And now we realize that the lysosomes are very important in Parkinson's. It used to be thought it was all the mitochondria and, and right. free radicals and oxidative stress. So now this has just blown it open because we now think that the Parkinson's degenerative process is associated with multiple different pathways that could be involved. And this provides interesting opportunities for future treatments. And on some level, is that kind of a discovery maddening as well? Uh, just because yeah. it probably, probably <laughs> closes other doors, I would imagine. Uh, uh, no, I, I don't know that it closes doors. It, it shows us how little we truly understand. Right, right. Uh, it makes you um, uh, 
humble in terms of yeah, thinking that you knew it all or thinking you were getting close and then a new door opens up and you say oh my goodness uh, where are we going with this one but uh, it is it makes it so, also very interesting so and fascinating here's a crazy question how does any of it work at all like, that's great you know, as, yeah. as you were just talking about these I, mean, I can't even go back I took some notes but mostly because I couldn't spell most of it all these things you're talking about I mean these are just a few cells so the, <laughs> the simple, the simple fact that cells function and can live normally yeah. is really quite remarkable. It the, really the, is the, um, How am machinery, I going to make it back to my car in the parking lot? That's what I want to know. The machinery <laughs> that each of your cells contains and utilizes to function normally, and then you also have to know that you you have thousands and thousands of proteins in your cells, and those proteins wear out. Mm. And so the cell has a machinery to eliminate the proteins that are becoming dysfunctional. And that's also very important. It's called proteostasis. That's very important in degenerative diseases as well because we recognize the pathways or the, me the mechanisms that you normally have to eliminate proteins and DNA and other things that are getting changed with time. Um, those normal functions are deteriorating in Parkinson's too. So there's a lot of interest in the mitochondria, there's a lot of interest now in the lysosome, there's mm -hmm. a lot of interest in proteostatic mechanisms and how they become dysfunctional, and on and on. It's a, it's a complicated uh, I've a situation. Whole, I've got a long list of words for my next spelling bee that I attend, <laughs> by the way. So how much, we've talked a little bit about, sorry, you've talked a lot about genetics, I've talked very little about it. Um, where does lifestyle come into this? You know, do you say to to somebody, you know, probably a good idea to stop smoking earlier, probably to cut down on the scotch. Maybe you really should be exercising and watch the fat. And the, and is it? I guess it, having studied philosophy for years, I'm not an either or guy. I, I don't like to polarize. Uh, I try to land somewhere in yep. the middle. So coincidentally, one of the um the features on the uh, past experience of people with Parkinson's disease is that they smoke less. Hmm. So you say stop smoking, there is a uh, suggestion that smoking actually may be protective. Now the most recent study, a very well done study, suggested that rather than being protective it was more likely that people with um, Parkinson's disease were less likely to become addicted to smoking. Hmm. The brain mechanisms for addiction were less present. Oh, and this shows you how long-standing the processes can be in your brain. If you're born with a tendency to addiction, which we know is genetic, um, if you have a tendency towards addiction, it may be that you're more likely to pick up the smoking habit. If you lack that propensity, you're less likely to pick up the smoking habit, or if you smoked, you have less difficulty stopping smoking. And so that was what was found. People who subsequently developed Parkinson's, if they smoked, they had less troubles stopping smoking mm. than people that didn't develop Parkinson's. So this idea that smoking is protective is, is probably much more complicated than that. So lifestyle, um, probably not as important in terms of prevention as in, for example, Alzheimer's disease and dementia in the elderly because we're more and more recognizing that blood vessel disease, diabetes, uh, hypertension, things like that have a very strong influence in your subsequent cognitive function. 
And in fact, the older you are, the less likely it is that if you have Alzheimer's, it's Alzheimer's by itself. It's probably Alzheimer's plus strokes, plus a variety of other things right. that are consequence of lifestyle changes. Parkinson's, it's a little less uh, of that, but there probably still are components of um, vascular changes in the brain and things that you can alter with lifestyle. Certainly, if you've got diabetes, you've got to control your blood sugar. If you've got hypertension, you've got to have your blood pressure managed because if you've got Parkinson's and then have the consequences of diabetes and hypertension and strokes, you do much, much less well. In terms of exercise, that, that's another very interesting area because there are people that believe religiously that there is evidence that vigorous exercise induces trophic factors in the brain, growth-promoting factors in the mm -hmm. brain mm -hmm. that protect you from progression of Parkinson's disease. The animal data is very supportive of that, but the problem is that there are no really good, reliable animal models of Parkinson's disease. Mm. So these are models that have been used, but they're not so good uh, in terms of predicting outcomes of other treatments for Parkinson's. So I'm not sure that they're really reliable in saying that the exercise you caused this rat to have uh, that protected the, the brain really would have applied to the human. What we do believe, though, is that if you've got a degenerative disease that impacts on your mobility, the fitter you are, the um, less obese you are, the um, better your joints are and your muscles are and the more toned you are, the less impact the degenerative process uh, that affects your mobility will have on you. And, which, and is, it, which is kind of where the early onset diagnosis sort of, yeah. I guess, could come in very handy for people, I guess, going forward as if they know that down the road, it's almost yes. as if you're, you're, you're getting things on the shelf, preparing. So, so we strongly recommend vigorous exercise. Right. I've, I've, when we first see patients who develop Parkinson's at their earliest state, when they're very healthy and doing everything well, we encourage them to get into an exercise program, drop the extra pounds if they can, and, and the patients that I've seen who have done the best tend to be the ones that are quite uh, uh, active in terms of exercise as does, well. Does the brain really change itself? You know, Norman Doidge's book, The Brain Changes Itself, I mean, it's obviously a, a, a brilliant metaphor for, for so many things. Uh, well, I'll, I'll admit right offhand that I'm very skeptical that his claims are accurate, mm. um, and mm. many of the things that I've read him say, I think, uh, are very poorly substantiated. On the other hand, there is such a thing as neuroplasticity, right. and whether neuroplasticity will be sufficient to really be able to overcome the fairly profound neurodegenerative process, I have my doubts. On the other hand, if you can induce neuroplasticity and trophic effects in other areas that may be able to compensate, almost certainly you're going to do better in the long term. You're not going to cure your Parkinson's. Right. And this is right. this idea that you're going to reverse a degenerative process by these neuroplastic changes. Kind of a dangerous notion. Is, is rubbish from my perspective. Okay. And I think that's harmful. It provides promise to patients that are, as I say, totally unsubstantiated. Well, and now there's something else wrong with me, right? Because I wasn't able to right. generate enough neuroplasticity yeah. in order to heal myself. Yeah, I think that uh, that, that argument and that belief has been given too much credence. So when will there be a blood test? 
It's likely there won't be a single blood test. Mm. Um, we are working with a number of um, research groups uh, who are trying to develop these biomarkers. Sure. And it may be that, well, uh, let me step back. Um, one of the things we've not talked about is the fact that I think more and more we're appreciating that Parkinson's disease is not a single disorder. Right. We're probably dealing with Parkinson's diseases and that's likely the explanation for why some people seem to have a very benign disorder with very slow progression over many years. And I have patients that are 10, 15, 20 years down the line and they're still doing very well. Yes, they're noticing progression of their symptoms, but some of them are doing remarkably well. Whereas others in five years, the bottom falls out. And it's not just that they've had strokes and other things that are superimposed. Uh, I think if those are present, we understand it. But when you lack those features, there have to be other factors that we really don't understand well at all. So, Dr. Lang, uh, 600 neurological disorders, is that about right? Oh, many more, I would Many say. more, okay. Yeah. So, Brain so, diseases? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I guess my, my, my point is Parkinson's would be one of those and now it's being seen as there are many others underneath the umbrella of Parkinson's or yeah, at least so, linked to. Yeah, so Parkinson's disease was thought to be for many years a uniform, mm. homogeneous, but maybe somewhat variable, but still the same, same disorder. Whereas I think maybe it's better to think in terms, and the analogy a lot of people are using now is like cancer. You can have colon cancer and it can have quite varied factors that tell the oncologist that, that he or she is not just dealing with colon cancer, he's dealing with cancer in the colon with this particular type of cell, with these particular types of receptors, with this degree of spread, etc. So usually the oncologist now thinks of multiple different components that allow them to subdivide and separate the type of cancer and with that knowledge then they would use treatment A or treatment B or treatment C. And often that treatment is not a single uh, drug. Mm. It's cocktail A or cocktail right, B right. or cocktail sure, C. Sure. And so I think in Parkinson's, it's likely that we have Parkinson's diseases that we really don't understand very well at all. That's one of the next things that we really need to, to try to push, finding biomarkers that correlate with different patterns the problem is that maybe the patterns that we've been looking at and trying to understand are uh, not accurate either. The, the old way of thinking of Parkinson's and subdividing were, for example, tremor dominant. So if you had bad tremor, yeah. that was your tremor dominant form. If you had postural instability gait disorder, PIGD, you had the PIGD form. And so you often saw tremor dominant or PIGD, and that was our understanding of subclasses of Parkinson's. I think it's much more complicated than that. And so we're, we're going to need large surveys or large studies looking at biomarkers in various different areas, different tissues, like I mentioned, skin biopsies, bowel biopsies, cerebrospinal fluid measures of various proteins, blood measures. Uh, are they going to be genetic factors? Are they going to be proteins? Are they going to be metabolites, metabolomics? Another really interesting area in medicine is your, um, the uh, bacterial uh, makeup in your bowel. And so there's a lot of interest in whether that will influence the clinical patterns of disease in some way. So there are many different factors and many different um, markers that we may find that will help us subdivide. 
And then they're going to be markers of the diagnosis. Mm. They're going to be markers of the progression. Are you a slow progressor or a fast progressor? They're going to be markers of the amount of dopamine disturbances and the non-dopamine disturbances. So it is very complicated, and it's likely that it's going to remain very complicated for a long time to come. I hate, I hate the fact that we've probably got to wrap this up in a few minutes because um, um, I feel like we're just sort of getting started. What, do, what would you say one of the one, here we go, I'm sure there are many, but one of the greater liabilities, I suppose, for folks who do develop neurological diseases, you know, is, is, it, is, it, is it mental health issues, uh, you know, is that, is that, is, is that what one needs to be aware of? Is it relational issues? You know, I certainly have my own experience uh, with the disease and know many people who have had it and have seen it sort of from the outside and watched, you know, with my father and so on and some of his friends. What, what's your sense? Sometimes it probably that's is hard. a very yeah it's a very complicated question because it's rather uh, it's very personal it's it's mm. it's, it's individual mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um, the liabilities and problems of someone with tremendous support services or systems who has strong family uh, connections who has a a strong um, personal belief or religious belief or whatever is going to be very different from mm -hmm. the isolated individual sure. who has no, no support mechanisms to fall back on. I just came back from uh, Southeast Asia, Cambodia, and talking a lot about mental health and PTSD in a country that's suffered from civil war and the Khmer Rouge and so on. I mean, this is just a term that's bubbling to the surface, mm. you know, so, so it's such a gap, you know, in the global south for people with neurological diseases, that's for sure. I mean, they would probably be seen as mental health diseases. Yeah, you know, yeah so, often. Yeah, yeah, I would think. Um, yeah, I just, I just kind of wonder what, uh, you know, what, what is the, um, is, is there something that, that you know, that uh, people with movement disorders bend towards, you know, where they have to be sensitive to, you know, areas that are kind of coming like a freight train, if you know what I mean, the, the, um, the, the implications of the disease, I suppose. Well, I think, most of them understand um, that they're dealing with a progressive neurological mm -hmm. disorder. Um, many of them appreciate that uh, um, the disorder is not just a movement disorder, as I mentioned. For example, cognitive decline is very common in patients with Parkinson's eventually, so there's the concern that the, they're not only dealing with something mm -hmm. that is impairing their day-to-day -day function, their mo motor function, but there are problems to look forward to, so to speak, that uh, will compromise other abilities. Um, so you can see quite mixed uh, responses and mixed uh, patterns of dealing with the, the disorder. And then on top of that, um, mood and behavioral problems can be part and parcel of the disease related mm -hmm. to the underlying brain involvement. Uh, for example, depression is depression, mm -hmm. anxiety, panic are I would think so. Not uncommon as symptoms even before the right. patient develops right. Parkinson's. So right. we know that just the anticipation almost. No, it's probably the underlying disease. It so is that the underlying disease. Yeah. So wow. if, if you look at large epidemiological studies, you find that people who have had depression or anxiety or panic in the past have a higher incidence of later developing Parkinson's. So we believe that those mood features may be premotor. They're part of the disease. Hmm. but they, they're an earlier presentation than the motor features. And so you can have that as part of the disease, but then you can have similar symptoms that are reactive to learning you have the disease. 
And so depression in Parkinson's is just m not monochromic. It's not a single kind of depression. It's probably very mixed in its uh, underlying cause. It just sounds like such, I mean, uh, it lacks so much clarity. <laughs> it's complicated. It, I, it, I tr personally believe Parkinson's is the most complicated disease that, that we right? know about. So if maybe you are a betting man, but if you were a betting man, uh, are are we? I mean, obviously, we're probably closer to to some pretty significant solutions by the sounds of it. Um, is there a vaccine around the corner, small c? Is is there a, a, a serious treatment like a biologic for for my arthritis that, that's yeah. attending to the um, disease around the corner? Are you hopeful? We're very hopeful. We've seen a lot of hope dashed by previous experiences in many. Um, disease-modifying trials. So I've been part of a lot of studies of drugs that had a lot of promise in mm. the uh, mm. preclinical um, animal models, for example, in, in cell cultures. The vaccines are just now being um, investigated. So the initial investigations have started. There's a great deal of hope, and uh, it is possible that we will begin to see a big impact on the underlying progression of the disease. If we don't see it, then it may not be going back to the drawing board, mm. but it's going to mean having to possibly combine that treatment with other treatments as we learn more and more about the disease. How often do you wish you had that little device from Star Trek that uh, Dr. McCoy has? Boy, that, every day. <laughs> <laughs> One last question, what about funding? Where, where is that heading right now, as far as you know? I mean, are, is, is Parkinson's, are neurological disorders and diseases well-funded? No. no. I, I think, well, mm. you, you ask any researcher about their own pet area, right, and right. they'll say no to we that need, question. We need more research. We need yeah. more money. I think that in the field of neurodegeneration, uh, the anal analogy that's been used is a tsunami. We are dealing with a tsunami of neurodegeneration of the aged, mm. and we've got to get answers, and those answers are going to be costly in, in getting to. And so I think increasingly governments are recognizing what they're going to have to be dealing with in right. decades to if, come, and they are beginning to invest, but it's still uh, at an inadequate rate, I think. I am so sorry we've got to end this interview, but thank you for your time today, Dr. Anthony Lang. He's the professor at the University of Toronto Department of Medicine. He's the director of the Morton Gloria Shulman Movement Disorder Center at Toronto Western Hospital and director of the Division of Neurology at U of T. This is a long list. And at the, he's a Jack Clark Chair for Parkinson's Disease Research at U of T and uh, holds the chair at Edmund J. Saffer Program in Parkinson's Disease Research. And you got if it we all. didn't get them all, we'll, we'll get them on the website for <laughs> That's Thank fine. you for your, your generosity today. You're really, quite welcome. Really appreciate it. I your hope time. it wasn't too complicated. <laughs> We're going to come back and, and, and get spellings from you later. And we'll post them. Thanks, sir. Okay. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 